So, messy grace. If you looked at your uh, program this morning as you came in, you see that we're talking about sexual identity this morning. And that's one of the reasons why I asked Neil to say something. I was working on my message this week, and my daughter came in to the room, and she started reading over my shoulder, which she does. She's nine years old, and she can read and stuff like that. And at one point, she said, she looked at me, and, and she, uh, she said, hey, Dad, what's gay? What, what, what does that mean? And I said, get out of here. Yeah, I'm just... <laughs> I am not ready to have this conversation with you. Uh, instead, I'll come and talk to, uh, to you guys uh, about that this morning. But um, it's a great time to highlight uh, our Velocity kids and our volunteers. Adria, who's our director, does an amazing job with, with that for age-appropriate stuff. And so we want to let you know about that. The other thing that's really cool, and this is completely off topic, has nothing to do with anything else, is I just want to let you know, just as a parent who's trying to raise uh, godly kids, there's this really cool, if you have a smartphone, there's this really cool app called Parent Q, and I have a picture up here. That's what the front of the app looks like, where you put in uh, your kid and their age, their birthday and stuff, and it will tell you how many weeks you have them until they graduate, which is a little, I know, it's like, oh man, that sounds like terrible. Don't download that or don't put that in. But what's really cool about that is each week it pushes content uh, for you to talk about uh, age-appropriate things, developmental things that are going on in their life, things that you could focus on a family, even some ways that you could share uh, about, about the Bible, some stories. Like on, uh, Mike, just go back to that one real quick because I want to point out that on, on this like third uh, picture right here, they've got these little video vignettes about stories from the Bible and little things that you can remember about uh, how we're supposed to live out our faith even as kids because that's important for them. So I just want to share that with you. It's really cool. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt and uncle, if you're a babysitter, uh, you should check that out. It's called Parent Q uh, and, and that would be awesome. All right. So I want to share uh, a story with you uh, this morning to kind of kick things off and, and that will kind of help to set the tone of what we're talking about this morning. You know, a lot of times throughout a message, I try to you know, set some things up where I can try to be funny or say something funny. There's not a whole lot of that in this message, if any of it at all. And so I just want to let you know and kind of get you prepared for that as we talk about this. And hopefully you can hear and see and experience the heart uh, that we have for God's word and for people at this church when it comes to tough topics and messy grace. I'll never forget that's how I felt when I read a girl who had been in my youth group in years past put out a blog, and it was something about her personal life, and she was sharing, it was something that she was sharing with, with everybody else, and what she was sharing is that the uh, relationship that she had had with her live-in boyfriend for the last couple of years was about to change. He had approached her and said that he felt uh, that he identified as more polyamorous than what a monogamous relationship that they had had uh, would produce. And so as a result, he asked her for an open relationship. On her blog, she expressed and kind of talked about what that process was for her, that he had made that request, that he just didn't feel like his needs could be fulfilled by her and that, that relationship and, and asked her, hey, is this something that's cool? And she, she explained and kind of described how she dealt with that. See, as a, as a person, she had committed herself to a generous, open, uh, accepting, affirming sexual ethic. And so she described this process that she went through of how she was going to be able to bring herself to a place in her life where she could accept and support this relationship for her boyfriend. 
She, she described how painful it was for her, how difficult it was for her to make this decision, but because she had committed herself to supporting him and to supporting others and how they felt and how they identified, this was a change that she was going to need to make for her life and even something that she was going to need to experiment with herself. Now, there, there are a lot of things to be said about that situation. I have to confess that one of my first thoughts was very selfish. I felt like as a youth minister, as a pastor, I had failed her. In, in that she was now going through this process in her life where she was letting go of, that was she was separating herself from this desire of having someone in her life that was willing to pursue just her. Someone that was willing to put all others aside, live a self-sacrificial love, and, and just be in a relationship with her. And see, through her words and how she described it, how painful it was a process for her to deconstruct what she had grown up thinking and feeling and believing and accepting what someone else believed and felt. This deconstruction of our desire to be pursued and have the devotion of one, you know, when we are told that we're supposed to accept that our sexual identity or how we interact with sex really should just be built on how we feel personally and the chemicals and the neurons that are fired as a result. Now, for some of you, that sounds like a gross oversimplification. That, that hey, first of all, Rob, it's none of your business what her sexuality is, although she did put it publicly in a blog. It's none of our business to tell other people how they should feel or how they should interact with sex. And some of you are thinking, man, that's, that's, I can't believe somebody would do that. Who would make that kind of dec- decision? There are people on all sides of the spectrum who agree or disagree with my assessment about that situation. Sociocultural, traditional views on sexuality have been challenged and have been in flux for years, but now it's coming to a crescendo. I mean, you look at politics and how they've shifted. You look at uh, marketing and how that has shifted. And everyone, it seems like, pop culture and industry have lashed on to a broad sexual ethic and an appeal to the sentiments and feelings of love. Who wants to stand in the way of love? Right? I mean, that's, that's what the discussion is often framed as being about. And what are we to do as Christ followers in the midst of this shifting state of sexual identity? What does it look like to develop a godly and gospel-centered sexual ethic? In a time in which the LGBTQ community is not just some theoretical thing that's out there, but they are a part of our church community. There are neighbors, and there are friends, and there are co-workers. What does it look like? to extend the grace of God when people are so divided over what that looks like? What does it look like to share God's grace with others? On the one hand, we have Christians who believe in the historical Orthodox Christian teaching on sexuality and reject anyone who deviates from that. On the other hand, we have Christians who believe that God's love is the highest religious ethic for Christianity and that as culture shifts in its understanding, so can we, as we apply general biblical principles to extra-biblical situations. There's division on what propels us forward. Whole Christian denominations are dividing just over this topic. 
I, I don't know if you've seen some of the statements that have come out recently over the last couple of weeks. I don't know how, how much you pay attention to some of these things or connected with media that would share this kind of thing. But just a few weeks ago, there was a, a statement put out by a big group of organizations and pastors called the Nashville Statement. Have, have any of you heard of that? Am I the only one? Okay. Okay. A handful of us have, have heard about this and seen this come out. So there's a group of uh, people who felt that it was necessary to create uh, basically a document, a five-page document when I printed it out as I was reading through it and, and studying it, uh, that gave everyone the correct view and correct theology on Christian sexuality. Then, a couple days later, there was another group that came out with something called the Denver Statement. If you've heard of the Nashville Statement, have you heard of the Denver Statement? The response to that? No? Okay. So this was a smaller group, and they basically came out and refuted point by point everything that the Nashville Statement had to say. And so you've got people on either end of the, of the discussion that are saying, hey, here's, here's the truth on the matter, and here's how we're supposed to... to to handle it. And then we've got a group on the other side saying, now here's the truth on the matter and this is how we're supposed to, supposed to handle, handle it. And, and what we've done with this situation and with politics and with race and with life, with the discussion, is we've said, and this is what documents and statements do like this, we've said at this table where we're supposed to be committed to each other in relationship and in conversation, we're going to create statements, we're going to create barriers to the conversation and relationship that God calls us calls us to have. And that's the tension that we're going to be pushing into this morning. There's nothing more painful that I have experienced in the church when Christians are divided and refuse to talk to each other about tough topics. See, people aren't really all that confused about the options when it comes to sexual identity. What's confusing it's how we as Christ followers should develop a gospel-centered theology around messy grace situations. Now, Jesus comes to this table in a very peculiar, peculiar and particular way, and he's the one that we should take our cue from. And so if you, would, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, and in John's gospel, how Jesus comes into the world defines for us how we are called to live out our faith in the world. Here's what uh, John writes in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Another way to read that, that verse would be, we have been given grace upon grace because of Jesus' coming. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And as Christ followers, those who claim to follow Jesus, like one of the things that should happen as a result of that, of being like Jesus, walking as he walked, talking as he talked, is that people will come to know and understand who God is as a result of that. And that is why it's so important that we press into the tension of what it looks like to operate within the fullness of grace and truth. That's how Jesus came is in the fullness of grace and truth. Not just one, not just, you know, 70% of one, 30% of the other, 100% of both. 
And he didn't take one down when it was a little inconvenient for him to talk you know, about truth more or talk about grace more. He lived out the fullness of both, and this is how we know God. And this is how we know that God is love. See, just truth looks like this. Being theology, theologically correct on issues like human sexuality and not sharing the gospel with those who disagree. Just grace looks like claiming and benefiting from God's love without returning his love through repentance. You see, grace without truth is impotent. Truth without grace isn't worth it. We're called to equal measures of both in our lives and how we live out our faith. And so let me just start off with just sharing this quote from this book that I'm going to recommend to you about this topic and explain why after, after I share this quote. We'll start here. Christians need to stop trying to convert people's sexuality. It isn't our job to change someone's sexual orientation. You and I are not called by God to make gay people straight. This was written by a guy named uh, Caleb Kaltenbach. He wrote the book uh, called Messy Grace. And this is specifically about how Christ followers should interact with this topic of sexual identity. Caleb grew up in a household where his parents divorced when he was two. Uh, both his mom and his dad uh, then came out as being uh, gay. He grew up in a household with, uh, with two moms who were very much active in the gay community. Uh, and he experienced going to rallies and to parties and all, all the kinds of things that they were into with that. And grew up thinking that Christians just hated gay people. That was his experience. In fact, the church that he went to only occasionally he didn't get connected to, and the Christians that he uh, met, one of the things that he was going to do is infiltrate a youth group and a Bible study and just show and prove to them how wrong they were. It wasn't until later in his life that Caleb actually ended up knowing and understanding the Bible through the lens of both grace and truth that he became a pastor and now writes about and preaches about issues like this and shares this with other people. And, and I just, more than, more than anything else, if you don't listen to a word uh, that I say this morning, I would love for you to pick up this book and read that and check, and check that out and read those stories and how he's, uh, how he's living out his faith in, in that moment and how he has shared Jesus with his parents. So people are aware that God in the Bible consistently calls homosexuality, homosexuality a sin. Like, like I'm, I'm not going to read you any verses from the Bible this morning that talk about homosexuality as a sin because you already know that they exist. Some think, as a result of that, the Bible's clearly against any form of non-traditional sexuality. You know, case is closed, right? Some think the Bible is clearly for non-traditional sexuality despite some of those passages. Some don't even care what the Bible has to say about these issues. And that's just Christians. I'm not describing anybody outside of, of Christianity. That, those, are the, those are the options, those are the, the viewpoints held by Christians. And so this morning, I, I'd really actually like to call ourselves out before we start to call out other people. You know the most popular way? This is completely anecdotal, by the way. This is, my, this is Rob's opinion and Rob's observation. The most popular way that Christians have formed their theology around sexuality is our feelings. I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of this too, but I, I just think as we look around and, and, and as I think about all the conversations I've had with so many different people and many churches that I've been a part of, the most common way for us that we've developed our you know, theology around sex is, is our feelings. For most of us, if, if we're honest, the way that we feel or have felt has dictated how we've handled our sexuality. It's dictated who we've hooked up with, how much porn we've watched, 
How many times we've had sex with someone we love before our spouse? How many times we've had a divorce over something that's not a biblical issue and then committed adultery by getting into another relationship? I mean, like, this is how inconsistent we've been historically as a church when it's come to these issues where we want to we talk about, like, this is one big issue that we say that's bigger than all, all the while. But I think it's because we want to take the focus off of ourselves because we're not pursuing the truth of, of Scripture in other areas in our lives. If, if I based my belief in God, my theology on, on God, if I determine what, what's truth from God on my feelings... I wouldn't be talking about this for sure. I've agonized too much over this message in particular and in, in sharing with this. Like if it was about feelings, this wouldn't be an issue. This wouldn't be a topic that we would talk about. Everybody would be fine. And I certainly wouldn't say this, this next phrase. All of these things that we've talked about this morning when it comes to sex, all of these things are called sin. And I wish they weren't. Selfishly, it would, it would let me have a whole lot less awkward conversations that I don't want to have. Selfishly, it would, it would make Christianity a lot more open-seeming and a lot more palatable to a broad number of people who are far from God, which is, which is what I, I, I care about. As a Christian, what we do about sin shouldn't be determined by what we feel, though. It's by what is true, and why we pursue that truth that leads into repentance, we ought to show grace to each other. So the messiness that comes with non-traditional sexuality is rooted in the deep, complex feelings that identity is rooted in being part of the LGBT community. And that's a, that's a subtle difference. That being gay or transgendered or queer is not construed as being something one chooses, but rather something one is. And, and frankly, there are a lot of people that want to that debate about whether or not somebody's born this way or they're born that way or how we should you know, talk about that. And I'm not really concerned with going up to someone and telling them to stop being who they are. Like, that's, that's not a goal I have in my life. That's not a mission I think we're being given as Christians. Here's what God is concerned with, is that over any other identifier, we choose Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, So in Christ Jesus you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is, is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The point of this passage a lot of time is missed because it's not saying who you are doesn't, doesn't matter. That's not the point of this passage. It's that who you are doesn't disqualify you from salvation. And so make sure that you and I and this church and other Christians that are around you, make sure that we are not the kind of Christian who lives as though some are disqualified while others are more qualified. All of us fall short of the glory of God without Jesus. All of us need more grace than we should, and all of us need the life-giving truth of the gospel. And all of us need to affirm the grace plus truth equals love equation of Jesus for the sinner. That's the life that we're called and interacting with people, whether we agree with their sexuality or not. There's a story about Jesus in the Gospel of John later on in chapter 8 that perfectly illustrates this. Jesus has gone back to the temple, and he's sitting there, and he's about to teach uh, the people. And, and of course, the, the religious elite come, and they're trying to trap Jesus. And they come, and they bring this woman who they say they've come, that, that they've caught in adultery. 
So they bring her to Jesus. They have her there in, in the crowd in the midst of everyone. By the way, the guy's not there. What's up, what's up with that? You, you know that their motivation is horrible. They're just trying to trap Jesus because the man's not there. They're putting all of the, the weight of this, uh, this sin on this woman. They're saying, what, what does the law say we should do, Jesus? Because the law says, hey, if someone is caught in adultery, they need to be dragged out in stone. So they're there. They've got their rocks. They're ready to, to toss them. And Jesus starts bending down, and he, he starts writing on the ground. We don't know what he writes. Some people have suggested maybe it's some sin that, you know, the, the group has committed, or maybe he's starting to write their names down. And he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down and continues to write. And John describes, and this, this is interesting, the older men that were there start to leave. And then finally the younger men that are there start to leave. And Jesus stops writing, and he looks up, and here's the most important part of the passage in verses 10 and 11. And he asks this woman, who's been embarrassed, who's been dragged out, who's been pointed out as a sinner who's disqualified from God's love, and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And here's the truth that Jesus shares in this moment. Jesus in the Bible consistently affirms that sex is meant to be experienced within a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. However, the grace that Jesus shares is this. Where we are quick to gather stones to throw at others, Jesus is quick to remind us of our own need for grace. Where we would condemn, Jesus empowers us with grace to leave our lives of sin. The love of Jesus calls us to drop stones instead to help pick up the pieces and bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have LGBTQ as part of their faith journey. May no one who isn't a Christian and part of the LGBT community receive a spiritual death sentence because of us. May no one who is pursuing celibacy, whether they're gay or not, miss out on the love and community of Christ because of us. There will be people who are lesbian or gay or bi or transgender or queer in heaven, right alongside every other sinner. They won't be there because other Christians converted them to a heterosexual identity. We'll be there together because Christ covers us and the Holy Spirit empowers us to pursue a godly identity. See, every person in one way or another, needs to exchange a false identity he or she has created for an identity in the risen Christ. God is big enough to take care of the messy when we are humble enough to what he calls us to, and that's to share the truth of his grace through Jesus. And every week at Velocity, as we take communion together, that's what we affirm. We are firm that everyone is accepted and invited to this table, but it also admits that none of us are approved of, that we're not here, that we don't gather together based on our own approval or because of what we've earned from God, but because we've accepted that we need to be covered by the grace and truth and love of Jesus. And so we take a little bit of bread and we take a little bit of juice that reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for all of our sin so that we could be reconciled to God, that all of us are called to this table and share in the same grace, same truth, and same love. Let's pray. 
God, we ask that um, as we share in this moment of communion together, that you would especially make your presence known. That regardless of what we struggle with or someone else struggles with, that the way that we think about our sin, the way that we treat others in their sin, always looks like inviting to them to the table to share in the same relationship that we have with you. God, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for him dying on the cross for our sin that we can be redeemed to you. Help us to share that same love and that same truth and that same grace with others. In Jesus' name, amen.